Kylie Dutson, a neurodiverse 30-something who is obsessed with organisational psychology and welcome to Lightbulb Moments, the podcast about all things psychology. and welcome to today's episode we are talking about men's mental health with michael beck michael introduce yourself hi everyone my name is michael beck i'm a leadership coach and trainer but i'm particularly passionate about mental health especially in men about making it safe to talk about how we are feeling coming up a massive level of shame at the time there's only one person that knew what i was what i'd experienced that was my brother i didn't tell anybody else maybe you and i should just start a weird dreams whatsapp group that could work. I love to look after my family. I love to cook and I do an awful lot in the house and I love doing that. It, it gives me a great level of joy. But there are some times where my oxygen mask will go on and it would appear to those that I'm being selfish. Thank you for coming on. When I sat with producer Andy and producer Liam, I made a list of the people that I wanted on and, and you were very close to the top of the list. Uh, so I'm looking forward to uh, having a chat with you today. That'll be good. Um, I always try and start with our origin story. So in terms of how we met and in terms of, um, I would love to hear from you what you think our origin story is and then I'll, I'll fill in anything that I think is different. <laughs> okay, so this is, where, this is going to see where we're aligned now. Yeah. So, you want me to go? Yeah, you go. So we met in spring of 2019, if memory serves me right, uh, at the Barefoot Coaching Course. And I think I described this to you recently where we, we I didn't know anybody on that course. It's a course that my wife and business partner had done a couple of years before. She'd recommended it. I was, I was excited about looking forward to day one. I think we had a conversation on the first coffee break, if I remember rightly, where we were grabbing a cookie out of the jar. Because I know I was immensely nervous, and I told you the story recently, where I very, very nearly drove out of the car park before going in, because I felt like an absolute imposter in that in that car park, thinking everyone else is going to be a coach already. They're going to have already be got their own business. They're going to be better than me. I am going to get shown up again like I'm eight years old in the classroom, and everyone's going to laugh. And it was that real feeling. And I think for me. I felt um, there was a level of almost kindred spirits where I felt like you were quite nervous, the same in that room. But equally, I certainly found when talking to you and I was like, wow, she is um, looked a lot younger than most people in that room, if I'm honest. But actually came with a level of a real level of gravitas and a lot of experience in your chosen field and very, very knowledgeable. And the more I spoke with you, the more I heard from you, the more I wanted to hear from you. But I got the sense that you were quite nervous too in that room. I don't know if that's true. I've never, we've never really had this conversation, so I'd be interested to see whether you felt the same. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, firstly, thank you. That's super kind of you. Um, I So yes, origin story, same. We met doing a crazy coaching course where we were together for like four days at a time and it was extremely emotionally intense, I think is, yeah. is how I would ex- ex- explain it. Um, I... Was I nervous? I think I was, I think that my nerves were more about um, space and control and showing up as my true self versus showing up as the self that I thought that people needed to see. 
that's probably where it was. Okay, that's so, interesting. Yeah, so it's a very similar origin story. Um, yeah. And I think one of the things that stood out for me as well is that we did the limiting beliefs session together. Yes, we did. So we did. Yes. Um, and that was probably one of our, that, that was the moment when I was like, oh, this guy's really cool. Like, I want to spend more time with this guy. Uh, so look, it's just a whole love fest today, mm. Michael. This is, this is what we'll do. Um, so thank you for sharing origin story. Again, something that I try and do with everyone, um, every guest, because I think it's really important that we set the scene in terms of who we are as a, as kind of, of people. Um, what are we talking about today, Michael? I think we're going to have a conversation about mental health, um, not exclusively, um, specifically, but certainly touching on the subject, how that is for men and how that is in the world we live in today. I mean, very, very different world post-pandemic, and it feels very on trend and very current, but for me, it's still something really important to talk about. Yeah, and not something I can talk about with uh, experience as a non-man so uh, it is nice to have you in the space. Um, yeah. Can I start then asking by why, because you do so much, right? You do leadership development, you do coaching, uh, you, do, you do an awful lot of things. Uh, why men's mental health? Why is that the thing that's come to the forefront for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I suspect this is possibly quite common in this field. One of the reasons I have a level of passion with that is by having experienced some of that myself personally and navigating that, that really difficult world at the time as to where was the support, where was the help, where was the guidance. <clears throat> Didn't feel like there was, there was, there was any to, to speak of. And I feel really passionate about knowing what I know now, how do other people in a similar situation get through, navigate their stormy waters? Because um, so, one of the things I've learned is that a lot of people experience mental health challenges far more than I ever realised, far more. And not just in, in the men's space, and certainly with the Mental Health First Aid England, which you know I'm affiliated to and, and an instructor trainer for, is that they talk about the stats that we use there is, is so much as one in six at any one time adults are experiencing poor mental health as we sit here today. Uh, and, and every year, one in four go through some mental health challenges. So, so it's far more prevalent than we realised. Well, my passion is about helping people find those resources for themselves because they're there. They just don't know that they're there. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of things that, uh, that you've just touched on. So you said you had experience of mental health yourself, but there weren't things that were available. Um, do you think that that's improved? Do you think it's still the same? What does that? What does the landscape look like? Yeah, another great question. Um, two answers to that. It is far, it's far more um, conventional and acceptable to, to talk about some of those mental health challenges. Now, we're clear, we're talking about uh, a suicide attempt here. Um, I think it's far more common and far more open to talk about it. Do I think the resources are better? They're certainly improved from, from my experience 27 years ago. Um, are they where they need to be? Absolutely not. And my fear is post-pandemic that we've seen a step backwards, unfortunately, since 2020, where it has become harder through all the challenges that we know with the NHS and resources, um, that they're incredible, but it, it's just not easy to get the help you need. The waiting list is just far too long. 
And you think that that's changed then? You think that that's different yeah, from, from 27 years harder. ago? I think I think it's safer to have the conversation, which is fantastic and really important. But I feel that the, the, the support is harder to get hold of. Still, I, I do I, I do also believe that being said, that there's there's still pockets out there, and I suspect this has always been the case where there's a real stigma attached to even talking about suicide in in itself. Uh, there are it's a subject that some people will just uh, I, I don't want to talk about that. It's a taboo. It's a no no. And I've learned actually it's a really, really healthy conversation to have, really important conversation to have. You um is it a conversation that you you just you shared with us that you've got your own life experiences that you mentioned twenty seven years ago? Is it a conversation that you have now? Is it a conversation you had at the time? I, I didn't have a conversation at the time, um, for a multitude of reasons. I oh, it's uh, <clears throat> I felt a level of shame. A massive level of shame. Um, one of the most important things about that is that I don't know if I shared this with you. There are at the time there's only one person that knew what I was uh, what I'd experienced. That was my brother. I didn't tell anybody else at the time. Nobody else. Um, I'm talking to you now, and I'm conscious. <laughs> clearly, this is a conversation I need to have. But one of my parents still doesn't know, so my father has no idea. Um, my mother only found out. I only told her four years ago about it. Um, that was a very interesting and emotional conversation to have with your mother, telling something that happened plus 25 years ago. I'm a parent now myself, so I can fully understand and appreciate that. I clearly wasn't a parent 27 years ago. Um, I I didn't get the help that I needed then because I, I was in denial, actually, looking back. Um, but for a series of life experiences and people that came into my life at that time, it helped me realize I needed to do the work on myself. And I, I, by the way, that's still work in progress. I'm still doing that work today. There's no way is that work done at all. Will it ever be done? No, I generally think it's a journey. Never. It sounds cliche, I know, but it, it generally is a journey, not a destination. You're, I'm always doing the work on myself. Um, and there are times where I experience low moods, um, not, not as often, not that often, but I but I'm become very conscious how I'm feeling. I I talk about it to my wife. I will bring it out in the open. I will mention it. And then I will practice what I call a level of self-care. That may appear to be really selfish, but it's the oxygen mask analogy, you know, on, on the plane. You, I have to put my oxygen mask on for me first before I help those around me, um, which is very important to me as a parent of four children and and. Um, and my wife, I, I love to look after my family. I love to cook and I do an awful lot in the house. And I love doing that. It, it gives me a great level of joy. But there are some times where my oxygen mask will go on and it would appear to those that I'm being selfish. And maybe that's the case, but I have to look after me first before I can look after them. I get the feeling that you live in a house that's very transparent and that's very open in terms of emotions. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a multitude of reasons for that. Um, so we're a blended family. So this is my second marriage. So there are two children from my first marriage and, and my wife's two children. But I always describe them. I don't see even saying the phrase stepchildren great to me. I, I don't describe them as that. They may not biologically be mine, but I, I absolutely see Sam and Kelly as, as mine. They have a dad around who's fantastic. He's awesome and, and on the scene and very supportive and very good friends. 
but I do see them as, as, as my children because they live in my house. I've, I've brought them up mostly for the last 10 years or so. Um, and they have their own challenges. So um, Sam is neurodiverse and as diagnosed with ADHD and that begin, begin, brings a, a level of challenges. And Kelly's transgender going through her journey. She's part way through her journey. Uh, one surgery done, and more to go. Uh, and that's been an incredible gift to me in my life experiences because we have to be very open with each other. And that, that of course, means there are times when it's noisy in the house for different reasons and it isn't always great. But there's a lot of love, there's a lot of conversation and a lot of connection and emotion in the house. But I think it's important to, to be transparent as you describe it. Yeah. And I think that um, sometimes when we talk about mental health, uh, the general public jumps straight to mental illness but we all yeah. have mental health it's on that continuum isn't it from like mental wellness all the way through to to mental illness so every single human being has a mental health almost like a battery right and sometimes it's full yes. and sometimes it's empty it's a great analogy i tend to use that quite in training i use the a picture a pictorial of a phone battery of you know what what charges your battery and what drains you and absolutely every single one of us regardless of of sex, religion, stature, you know, CEOs earning massive seven-figure salaries, they will experience low days, mental health um, days where they're just not feeling on top of their game. We can't all perform at the highest level every day. It's, it's physically impossible. Um, and I think it's important to call those out, to, to be open and transparent about some of those days and to make it safe to say, I'm not feeling 10 out of 10 now. I might be feeling a 6 out of 10. And that's okay. That's completely okay. Um, to to call that out there, but you're absolutely right. Every single one of us experiences those trials and tribulations every day. That's how we um. There's a, a coaching tool that that we use um, scaling, right? So if you're if you're having an in, an in depth coaching conversation with someone and somebody starts to talk about uh, mental wellness or resilience or those kinds of things, you would ask, "Oh, what number are you today?" Um, and it's a really nice way for if you don't have 30 minutes you don't have an hour to spend with someone to do a full-on coaching session just to be able to walk past them in the corridor or send them a team's message hey what number are you today and it's really innocuous but for them they know that you care and it's your job to kind of listen for that number and see when it changes but also ask the question when it goes up like oh what's gone well versus only asking oh why has it gone down so i love that i love that. and it's a really simple conversation to have isn't it and, and i and i'm sure this is the case one of the things that I'm smiling hearing that is what's lovely about that is that you are what you are. And one of the things in human beings that we all try and do, um, and specifically, I think men are terrible. We try, we try to fix, don't we? So someone says, I'm a five out of 10. Oh, what you want to do is you want to go for a run or you want to. And of course, in that space, you don't want someone to tell you what to do. You don't want someone to say, I know just how you feel. Cause quite frankly, no, you bloody don't. Cause everyone feels how they feel. And that's the worst thing that you can say is to just say, oh, you're a five out of 10. Okay. And it's almost that level of acceptance and lack of judgment is really important. So you're feeling five out of 10. That's completely okay. Yeah. Um, I love that. What, what number are you today, Michael? That's a great question. Do, do you know what? If I'm really honest, when I woke up this morning, I was absolutely five. I had a really restless night last night. I, I'm, I'm an avid dreamer. Um, and I often share my dreams with my wife. She's not interested at all. But I'll say, to her, oh, this is a really crazy dream last night. And she'd be listening to me, but not listening to me. And I had one of those crazy nights where, where I had um, not a lot of sleep. But 
I got up stupidly early, so I was at the gym and my boot camp at half five this morning, half five to half six. So my number now, knowing um, certainly from about 8.30, got one up to a solid eight. So I know what I need to do to move that number. Now, that's the difference from me today, from me 25 years ago. I know how to move the needle. I know what I've got to do for me, which is very different for every one of us, of course. But I know what I need to get my number up one or two points. Yeah, it's um, it makes me think of uh, when we and you'll probably do this when you do coaching. It's about making the subconscious things conscious. So in the past, you might have low mood and stumble into something that gets you higher to where you'd want to normally be. But if you can start to make those things conscious, like you have done, right? So you know that going to the going to doing boot camp helps you increase your number. If you can consistently put those in place, then you can move from those lower numbers to the higher numbers much quicker and your resilience is, is restored a lot quicker. That's 100% right. So the trick is, is knowing yourself enough, which takes time and a lot of soul searching and then always like what I see, but knowing what I need to do to move my, my, my needle. So the exercise piece for me is critically important. Why? It's not the phys- physical exercise per se. It's how it makes me feel. So when my alarm goes off at 4.50 like I did this morning, and I lie there in bed thinking, I do not want to go in the gym with 20 other sweaty men over 40 or 50 and lift a whole lot of weights and do resistance training. Of course, I don't want to. I'd rather lie in bed with my wife. Who wouldn't? But I also know, and I've framed and anchored the feeling of when I walk out of the gym, how do I feel when I walk out of the gym at half past six? I feel exhilarated, infused, energized. I want that feeling. So I know I've got to put myself through that. Once I've done that, that makes my food choices better because I've exercised. I don't want to ruin the work I've done. So if I don't exercise, my food choices aren't always great. And therefore, after that, weirdly, for me, my TV choices are poor. So I'll start watching mindless pap and not things that are educating and helping me learn and grow. So the things are all intrinsically linked over time, yeah, from exercise to food to TV to where I spend my time. It, and it's, it can unravel relatively quickly if I'm not disciplined in that space which I'm not always disciplined sometimes yeah and like you've given us very specific examples that are very specific to you and they are very tailored to every single individual aren't they um in terms of when we talk about men's mental health then and you kind of mentioned there's this taboo around men talking about mental health because they like to rescue um what is it that you're doing to to get the conversation going or what is it that you want to be doing to get the conversation so men feel safer talking about this that's a brilliant question um what i want to do is to absolutely keep it on the agenda keep the conversation going keep it alive and make it safe to be vulnerable really important for me that level of vulnerability i think you know brenna brown describes it beautifully well um i love her work it's just first class when they talk about it absolutely should be safe to talk about how you're feeling. Um, it's interesting when I look at my background, I was born in London, lived in a council estate. My accent isn't as maybe as dulcet as I like it to be. And, I, and I'm conscious that how I look with my hairline, it doesn't, it's not always conducive to someone who's vulnerable and sensitive. So we judge, you know, we all judge, rightly or wrongly. We judge people on what we see often in those first seven seconds, often even quicker. So for me, I have to work really hard to continue to keep that. And I actually think maybe it's my superpower sounding the way I sound, maybe looking the way I look, because people expect 
my language to be slightly more harsher, more Phil Mitchell or Grant Mitchell-esque. And I would want to work hard to make sure that there's there's warmth and, and humour, lots of humour, but to make it safe to talk about it to so when you're not feeling great. And I think I'm really happy to, I was brought up by a single parent. My mum is an incredible role model for me. And I generally think she brought my brother and I up to believe not that men and women are equal, that women are better than men. And I'm more than happy to admit that women are the stronger sex emotionally, physically, because that's why men aren't so great generally about talking to their friend. Um, women are great at talking to their friends how they're feeling. Um, men aren't. Um, there's a lovely, I don't know if, if you're familiar with Mickey Flanagan as a stand-up comedian, one of my favourite. There's a lovely sketch he does where he's, he's going to meet his friend and he's, his wife says to him, I'll, I'll tell Tom's wife I said hello. And then he comes back and she says, did you say Did you say hello to, did you ask how Tom's wife was? And Mickey Fanagan says, I didn't even ask how Tom was. So men, we generally don't ask each other, how are you? We just get into the rigour of, you know, be it football. And it's quite cliche and stereotypical, but it does happen. We don't talk about things that are emotional and vulnerable and we should far more. Mm. Make it yeah. And I think that there's a... I think there's a role of um, the organisation as well to do that because there are there's a lot of support out there, but are organisations doing the right kind of focus? Yeah, that's a, that's a really important one because I think um, I did I did some work on this when we were doing our training with MHFA and I wrote, we had to do a, a presentation back on an area in mental health and I chose EAPs. And I think EAPs are a fantastic um, thing that just didn't exist you know, 10, 15 years ago. Brilliant that they're out there. But I do find myself wondering how many organizations are doing it because they feel they have to tick a box. A bit like EDI for us at the moment is that an EAP is important. But how do we treat EAP is, Michael, for people that don't know? Um, employment Assistance Programme, sorry. I'm using, using acronyms. And I do wonder, organizations, what would be more powerful for me? is to see um, leaders of organisations, really key leaders that are public profile, that are prominent, talking about their own experiences, CEOs, COOs, um, really high, high um, in, in big businesses, talking about their own personal experience of mental health challenges and how they got through it and how they helped themselves. Because equally on the backs, on, on the other side of that, I also don't believe it's organisations' job to fix people. It absolutely isn't. We're living in a really strange world where, having a number of these in my house with Gen Zs who, who think it's it's the company's job to fix them. It absolutely isn't. It's an inside job. You, you're, you need to fix yourself. The resources are there. Someone just may need to point them out to you. And we talk about this in coaching, don't we, a lot. Organisations just need to sh- maybe show the path, but it's the, it's the employee's job to walk down that path. Mm. Yeah, I think there's the, there's the element of um, empowerment, right? Like to own it yourself. 100%. I feel very passionate about that because I do worry that as a society, um, some of the younger people going into in their first role or second role in the, in their teens and early twenties have a misguided belief that it, it's it's the company's job to, to to give them, and it's not just jelly beans and and um, bean bags and all the other things that that we it's so much more than that, and it's their job to realise that they have to take responsibility for themselves every single day first. You mean pizza party parties are not going to solve? mental health issues oh no they're not you heard it heard it here first people that's not going to solve mental health problems um is there anything that so 27 years ago is there anything that could have been put in place that that would have helped you 
anything that would have protected you from um, a, attempting to take your own life? Mm-hmm. A great question. A lot of it was with me in, in my upbringing and my my childhood. I mean, I had a fantastic childhood. I didn't have a bad childhood at all. Um, but I never felt like I belonged anywhere. And that's part of my challenge. Um, we moved schools a lot. And I, I, I never allowed anyone to get close to me previously, which then meant that I didn't share or connect with people how I was feeling. And, and I certainly put on a front was what um, I was expected to do. I also um, found it very difficult in my my teenage kind of I had a really uncomfortable um, relationship with crying. My my parents and, and came from a very different upbringing. Um, my parents are very young, so my mum was sixteen and my dad was seventeen. I think I'm sort of, so very very young in London. So the, they were brought up that, cr- that kids don't cry, and, and so I was almost taught don't cry. Uh, I remember once playing in a football match um, and getting a ball smack in the face in football match. My dad was watching, and I started to cry because it was it, it, it bloody hurt. Right? It hurt. It's okay to cry. And my dad looking across angry because other people were looking at me as I was crying. He was like, stop crying right now. So I, I never showed my emotion. I, I hid all that inside. And I learned, I've now learned that emotion is really important to share that, to talk about it. That's not my parents' fault. That was that was an inside job on me. So I'm not sure if there was anything around that could have helped. It was more about my realising it's okay to share that emotion and be vulnerable. I feel like... Um you and I are just the opposite sex version of one another as we start to talk about this. Um, Why do you say that? <laughs> uh, firstly, the weird dream stuff. I feel like yeah. your uh, your wife and my husband could spend a good lot of time having discussions about the weird dreams that we share yeah. with them. Um, I have extremely vivid dreams. Um, uh, so maybe you and I should just start a weird dreams WhatsApp group. Yeah. That could work. Why not? Share it, share it. Weird and wonderful dreams. Um, Yeah. Um, But I think that I, so I also struggled from that mental health perspective when I was a a teenager. Um, And so I think that, you know, and I think there's a difference between when people look at you and they go, oh, it's just teenage angst. Oh, it's just every teenage, it's just hormones. I think there's a huge difference between it just being hormones and then making the decision that you're going to do something that, that could essentially end your life. Um, so I think that as parents and, and I don't know about, so I feel like I'm hyper vigilant about mental health. And again, I have a, a nine year old, almost 10 year old. And it's, it's even at this point, it's something that I listen out for. Do you find, do you, do you have that? Do you have that hyper vigilance? Yes, I do. I, I, I do. Um, and one of the other reasons why I'm so passionate about mental health and bringing it um to the to the forum is is my oldest son had an experience when my first wife and I divorced and and he's such a good boy Adam he, he's just exemplary you know straight A student such a beautiful beautiful boy and in many ways having children saved me um, gave me purpose he had an experience when he was uh, um, ten or eleven years old himself um, a, a bit of an episode and I did not know what to do as a parent I, I don't know. I didn't know what to do. And that's one of the reasons that led me down that path around what I need to know as a parent. What, what do I look for? What other signs? What do I do? You, know, you can't tell someone, pull up the big boy pants or all those, because they're just not relevant in today's world. 
So that's what led me towards mental health first. I didn't want to do my training initially and then to want to become an instructor in that so that I can look out for. And there, are, and there probably are a couple of, a number of signs that you are not exclusively, um, the, but certain things like being withdrawn, um, maybe spending loads of time in your room. Uh, Anne Kelly has experienced some of this. She's had her own mental health challenges. She won't mind my talk about those where she left school midway through her A-levels because of her transgender. It was just too much for her. She was spending all her time in her room, all her time on her phone. And, of course, teenagers spend all their time on looking at Instagram, and it's that compare and despair element around why am I not as beautiful as them? Why do they have better hair than me? Or why are they living a better life than me? Um and that led to the poor food choices, to eating late at night, to, and then interrupts the circadian rhythm, so your sleeping patterns aren't right. You're not going outdoors a lot. All those things sum up. They're, they're probably some key things to look for. And it's typical, isn't it? Teenagers spend all the time in their room. They don't talk to their parents. So, you know, life is so unfair. But it's really hard to engage and connect with teenagers because You've just got to ask the right questions at the right time to get them to want to talk to you. And it isn't easy to accept that. It really isn't. Having four of them in the house at different times, I'm not s- suggesting for a second there's no masters, but it, it's certainly something we, we spend loads of time thinking about. How do we help our children more and make it safe for them too? Yeah. And like you say, that the wait times and, you know, there are some people fortunate enough to be able to get private support. But if you're looking at wait times on the NHS and things like that, they they are literally years to be able to get support. Yes. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And I think that's definitely got worse since COVID as well. So that's a worry. Yeah. If um if you were to, because we always try and give people like a light bulb moment uh, when we're talking about uh, the mental health and and enjoying our episodes if there was something that you would want to see put in place either for children if that that's what you want to talk about or in if an organizational perspective for men's mental health what would that thing be there's there's so much that comes to mind but probably the biggest the biggest single thing for me is the concept of self-care about helping people recognize how do you know when you're starting to dip a la phone battery? When are you starting to drain below that 50%? What sign, how do you spot your signs? And what do you need to do differently to help get back above that 50% level? And if that means being selfish, that's totally okay. Whatever that is. And, and all of our self-care will be very different. I describe some of mine and I accept that my self-care is not what someone else is. And, and that's the other bit. It's not a one size fits all. It's whatever works for you. Be that running, be that painting, be that joke. There's a matter, whole matter of things, maybe music, playing it or listening to it, whatever they are, what gives you joy? Where do you spend your enough time where you get, where you get to joy? And focus on that. Michael. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, I know that it will resonate with an awful lot of people. So I appreciate you. I am so glad that I have you in my life. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. I've loved it. Thank you to Michael for that conversation today. It was great to hear his experiences of men's mental health. Um, I appreciate the, the honesty and openness in the space. For me, the light bulb moment today was about putting on your own oxygen mask first and doing the, the self-work uh, to, to figure out what it is that you need to do to make your own mental wellness work. Toodles! Toodles!